0: Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is historian Kevin Cruz, who is one of the authors behind this anthology of essays called Myth America, which we are going to jump into today. Thank you for so much for being here. Good morning. Hey, great being here. So I, I feel like today is the perfect day to have this conversation because earlier in the show we were having a discussion and i don't know if like i'm totally correct about this but i think it is worthy of discussion um about whether or not the the use of the word woke by conservatives um just is sort of like their substitute word for black like they want to criticize things as being like too black but they say (laughs) woke instead um but before we even get to that nuanced part of this conversation i want to ask you why you decided to put this anthology together like why did you get your historian friends together to do this i love historians one of my best friends is a historian historians are my jam because we need to understand this stuff right yeah absolutely
1: uh, you know, look, you know, we've always had myths and, and lies in American history, but something about the last six, seven years it really took off. Uh, and and a, a key part of that something was President Trump, right? Um, uh, from everything from making claims about how this was the biggest or the best or the uh, long, you know, the largest whatever uh, in American history, or how he was, you know, like Jackson or Lincoln, or you know, they they were there were nothing compared to him. Uh, to the efforts to control American history itself. You know, the his 1776 commission, which was his kind of rebuttal to the 1619 project, uh, was one of his last uh, acts as president, um, was to put out this version of patriotic education. So there's been a concerted campaign from not just Trump, but the larger kind of conservative media ecosystem to really uh, uh, challenge some basic foundational things about American history. Uh, and that things that just don't jibe with what historians research and write about all the time. So, uh, a lot of us have spent the Trump years pushing back on these claims on social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Substack, things like that. But what do historians do best? Well, we we like to think we we write best. So yep. uh, it made sense to to bring these people together and do the kind of things they were doing on social media, but get them back in the in the book uh, format and, and write some some short. Uh, I think snappy readable essays uh that could reach a general audience
0: one of the things um that is highlighted in one of the essays is this idea that even the slogan America first that trump yeah. i mean he he's the one that sort of, it's not the first time it's ever been used, of course um but walk us through why that is is it doesn't mean what they think it means or how they want us to think. <laughs> how, uh, it,
1: yeah, that America it, First means. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and I noticed this came up in your last segment, right? So, this is a good example of, you know, how these things are floating around in our conversations about the present. Mm-hmm. They're all rooted in the past. So, we've got an essay by Sarah Churchwell, uh, about America First, and its proponents present it as this is just pure patriotism, right? Can't we all get behind, you know, putting in our country first? But what Sarah shows in this essay is this is a phrase with a long history, um, uh, stretching uh, back a ways, um, most prominently in uh, uh, the run-up to World War II, when uh, kind of right-wing isolationists use it. But even before, you look at the second Klan in the 1920s, uh, they use this phrase all the time, too. So it's a phrase that seems on the surface to be kind of unifying, but has, in fact, been mobilized time and time again by forces on the far right to advance a, uh, a really reactionary politics under a kind of, you know, uh, sunny and happy label.
0: I mean, it, it feels so much like, I mean, w- w- what could you ever have a problem with saying America first? Like, it's the kind of slogan that you throw out, and if anybody's like, I think that you might mean white supremacy, then you seem like the crazy one <laughs> in the conversation, right? And I think it's, it's such a... Um, it's an effective slogan but again it doesn't mean what they they want you to think it means the other thing that you talk about um is this myth of you know the good protest and this sort of leads us to our present moment because one of the things is a older millennial and you know i'm a granddaughter of the civil rights generation daughter of the generation that came after um the jim crow era um i feel like this idea that like Every the black people dressed up in their nice suits and then they yep. went out and they did their nonviolent protests and that they weren't beaten, they weren't attacked, they weren't like, you know, killed. Um they were, you know, they got their rights because they kneeled and they prayed with Martin Luther King and he made a speech. And then everybody in America, including all the white people that you see in photos of like Ruby Bridges, they were like, Okay, we'll accept this. Civil rights for everybody. Like this myth that in the yeah. civil rights era like civil rights were won and then it was over.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you said it (laughs) perfectly. Uh, uh, And this is an essay he's early by, as you know, by uh, Glenda Gilmore, who's a a historian from Yale Uh, and it's a a brilliant piece and you may say, okay, so what's wrong with saying Martin Luther King was great. The civil rights protests of the sixties were great. Well, the problem is just as you describe it, if you sterilize and sanitize what those protests were really about, if you reduce the demands of the civil rights protest to that one line we heard time and time again from conservatives yesterday about uh, uh, the content of their character, uh, the only line from Martin Luther King that people <laughs> seem to know. Uh, if you reduce it just to that one thing, if you have an image of your mind, as you described it, of uh, the protests as being well-behaved ministers in suits and ties, um, you know, uh, 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 peacefully parading through the streets and no one objecting, uh, and you uh, assume that everyone... Uh, uh, supported these these things, they were wildly popular. What's the big deal? Well, the problem is that's not the case, right? right. Uh, Martin Luther King made radical demands uh, on America, demands that uh, Americans uh, I think should still find challenging today. Uh, much less at the time uh, of racial segregation, was challenges to poverty, to militarism, things like that. Uh, they were very disruptive. They were very unpopular. Um, yeah. The March on Washington itself, you know, I, I, I tweeted out a poll the other day. Uh, It had something like 27% support going into the the march. It was not seen as something popular. It was disruptive. It was going to, you know, disrupt traffic and business. The the complaints you hear about Black Lives Matter today. (laughs)
0: Yep. Yep. I mean, yeah, go
1: ahead. So they hold up that that good protest, right? And they say, oh, look at how great that was. And they use that to shame (laughs) contemporary protest, right? To say, well, unlike Black Lives Matter, King knew how to do this. King had a limited thing. King was popular. no. There's a direct line of continuum between the protests that King raged, the exact topics King complained about police brutality was something King talked about all the time and the protests we see today. And so this myth of the good protest is meant to kind of sever the tie between those two when there really is a strong level of connection between them.
0: And that leads me to the conversation we were having earlier in the show, which is now I do this thing in my brain where when they say woke, I just insert black. And this is why I think I do that. Because what they're trying to do is to speak to their base and signal to their base that Democrats, they're trying to push for civil rights for black people. You know that you didn't like that. You didn't like mm-hmm. that in the 1960s. You didn't like that in the Reagan era. You didn't like that in the 1990s. That's why you did the war on drugs. I mean, talk a bit about, I mean, whether or not you, you think that woke equals black you could totally disagree, but just curious your thoughts on that since we were discussing that earlier in the show, but also how that criticism and that critique using the word "woke" as a bad thing like we don't yeah. want to be woke um is is strategic for right wing media and conservative politicians in this moment as they try to rewrite this history yeah i
1: mean I think woke it, and I'm sure in some people's mouths it it means black others. I think it means it's kind of the latest version of, you know, politically correct or, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm, or tropes mm-hmm. they've used. They all mean the same thing. It's a desire not to reckon with the realities of, of what actually happened. Right. Yeah. So those are, they, they sneer about woke or PC or things like that is that sounds foreign and, and odd and kind of based on theory. Right. And, and what we've seen with a lot of these uh, uh, the complaints they're pushing back on They're grounded in fact, right? And so you can look at the fight over critical race theory, right? Well, critical race theory sounds very broad and ambiguous. But if you, again, talk about uh, the nuts and bolts of it, about how the law is applied unequally on the ground against African-Americans as opposed against white people, uh, it's kind of stark and obvious, right? And and again, this is something that the civil rights community has been complaining about to go back to the last conversation, back to King. Uh, And so there's been a long, uh, a long continuum of, of pushback against this uh and so the only way to dismiss it is either you you acknowledge the details and you have to wrestle with them or you just pretend it didn't happen you pretend it's not a, a
0: real complaint it's just woke that sounds silly and so dismiss it is it's it's so frustrating but it, <laughs> but we need to, we need to sort of confront it because i feel like for me the reason why history is my one of my favorite things is because it's it's how you understand what's going on in the present If you don't understand history, you can't understand what's going on. Like if you didn't know American history, you would have been like you wouldn't necessarily be able to contextualize a Confederate flag being wielded at the insurrection. Exactly right. Yeah, again, we, you know, we
1: constantly speak in a shorthand that invokes the past, right? This is like the Civil War. This is another Watergate. This is the Uh second civil rights struggle, right? So we're constantly invoking those things. And so it really is important that we have uh, not just an awareness of those historical facts, but an understanding of them, right? And again, that's the the purpose of this book is to try to really uh, uh, fill in for general audiences uh, uh, in, I think, an engaging, entertaining way, uh, some of the backstory so they they can understand uh, the present and the future uh, by first understanding the past.
0: The other uh, myth is American exceptionalism. I love this because we're living through a pandemic moment um, and we've been in a pandemic for years now. And the myth, uh, I feel like it's been busted a bit, but but take us through how this myth of American exceptionalism has been created and cultivated in right wing media and then wielded as a as a weapon,
1: (laughs) basically. Well, this is is a great essay by by the one non-American historian in our group. It's my colleague, uh, David Bell, who's a historian of revolutionary France. And so we got someone outside of American history to look at this idea of American exceptionalism. Uh, And it's a great essay because he says, first of all, he finds the origins of this in an unlikely place. It's Joseph Stalin who first popularizes this term. And it's it's as a ways to say, well, why doesn't America follow the usual rules? The rules that Marx said would lead a country into communism. I say, well, it, it's exceptional. It, it didn't have you know feudal past. It didn't have all these other class problems, but it gets picked up and popularized in our own time by somebody a little different, about as radical, uh, but on the other end, Newt Gingrich. And so Gingrich starts popularizing this term. Basically, to set America above and apart from the rest of the world, right? And we don't have to; we don't follow the other rules. We're America, right? Uh, and so that's the uh, uh, that's the idea that comes out that not only is America better than other countries, but just the rules don't apply, right? So you can't draw comparisons between, you know, Western Europe having uh, universal health care or things like that. You can't draw a comparison between them and us. We're on our own. And, and again, what David Bell shows in this uh, this essay. Uh, is that that's uh, that's not as true as as people have said, but also it's got a, a really interesting lineage.
0: That is fascinating because I didn't know either of those details. <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know it started in, with Stalin. I probably could have guessed if you had like put me, yeah. you know, under some sort of duress. I probably would have guessed Newt Gingrich, but you know, because most bad things. <laughs> originate like but well in terms of the bad faith of the our current political debates sure. most of them originate uh in the era of newt gingrich um but, but i um but i but mm-hmm. that does surprise me as well um talk a bit about the how the right-wing media is a part of this and even the mainstream media frankly in how we frame our debates i feel like a lot of the ways we talk about stuff it just makes it it bans the flames of white resentment in a very yep. particular way. Talk, talk us through that.
1: Well, I mean, so there, there are kind of two sets of media here, right? So the right-wing media, I think is in a lot of ways, um, uh, deliberately cultivating, uh, a lot of these myths, um, uh, myths that uh, we've got chapters in here on how the new deal didn't work or the great society didn't work myths that, you know, you would hear on, on Fox news as a way to discourage people from supporting the government from trying things like that again, um, a lot of the myths are uh, really, uh, really racialized, and these are ones that go beyond simply the right-wing media. So a great example here is the um, uh, the chapter by Larry Glickman about white backlash. And this is a term a lot of people have used, uh, people on the center and left as well as the right. Um, and as, as Glickman shows in this piece, it really excuses a lot of the people involved in these backlash actions by making it not a movement, right? A backlash has to have backlashers. Right. And so the way in which the white backlash is normally presented is, oh, liberals did such and such or African-Americans. achieved this gain and it prompted a white backlash. Right. Which just happened. It's like, you know, like like a law of physics It's bound to you're bound to have this reaction. No, those people have agency. They have ideas. They have motives right and the, and it isn't that they're simply let off the hook because it's a natural reaction no they're pushing back on this right and so we've got to understand them on their own terms and it's not simply you know they've they were pushed too far and finally rose up the kind of the tea party narrative we heard right but rather uh they are actively engaged in this,
0: but also they've they they do not stop it's not like you know the backlash starts and stops right I think right. Th- this is the other the other thing I think people always need to to get, right? The, 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 attacks you mentioned on black lives matter, those narratives, they were always wielded against anybody who was coming yeah. out and asking for civil and human rights. And they just repeat them. Yeah.
1: Time and time again. I mean, and, and this is a, uh, uh you know, a running theme um, throughout the book, throughout American history of the way in which, um, uh, the, the constant, um, uh, some of the, the the racist structures remain constant, even though the, the dynamics change. So Erica Lee has a chapter on on immigration, uh, and it exposes this this myth of, of they keep coming. We hear this uh-huh. you know, you see the, in uh, uh, ominous videos about the caravan coming to the southern border or whatever it is every midterm election. Uh, and as Erica shows. This has been a constant American history. It's just the faces of the immigrants have changed. Yep. You know, in, in the mid 19th century, it was they were warning about, you know, my ancestors, the Germans. Right. And then it was the Irish and then it was the Italians and the Greeks and the Chinese. And then it was Eastern European Jews. Uh, and then it was finally Latinos. Right. Uh, and and the, the the panic, the target of the panic has changed over time. But the tone of the panic has been a constant. Right. Uh, And so it shows that there's a real uh, long story here, a continuum, on which uh, kind of nativist politics play out. Uh, And what's remarkable is that, you know, one generation's uh, 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 people were fear-mongering about, you know, oh, my God, here come all the Germans. Uh, A century later, they're the ones doing the fear-mongering. German-Americans talking about, oh, here come all the Italians, right? So uh, it's this constant cycle. Uh, And it's a little bit ironic that we wind up, uh, you know, uh, uh, acclimating the the people who we were warned against uh, just a generation before. Uh, But it shows how persistent and how tough uh, uh, to uproot a lot of these myths are.
0: Well, I'd always I always laugh when a Republican politician, I mean, even when Senator Marco Rubio stands up and is like, I'm the son of an immigrant. I'm like, do you understand what your party is saying about immigrants? Because you can't say like, but but oh, I went through the right legal process. Like I like. You're being a little bit too cute by half when when you do that, I think. Um, and at the end of the day, I, I feel very similarly about the fact that they just keep updating the group of of yep. folks coming. People have always been coming um, since the beginning of time. I In the last three minutes here, I want to talk a bit about misinformation, because I think in this age of social media, it 's just a mess out there, right? I mean, you talked about how historians have been trying through the Trump era to push back on social media spaces, but now Elon Musk owns Twitter and Donald mm-hmm. Trump is back on Twitter i mean he 's not really tweeting anymore, but his account has been reinstated. Many of the Republicans who were kicked off have been they 're back, and the Nazis mm-hmm. are back, and you know there 's always a Russian you know uh, promoted hashtag trending in my trending topics on any given day, so take us through how misinformation fits into this current moment where we already are pretty bad at telling accurate history. So, but now we have social media to make it worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the, 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 promise of social media was hooray, everyone's going to have a voice. <laughs> and it turned out the problem was, oh, no, everyone's got a voice, right? Uh, and, and, I, I, I mean, it, in a way it's great. We can all reach out to each other. We can all talk to, but the problem is that we've lost a sense of who do we trust, right? Who can you rely on? Uh, and I think social media has really aggravated that. And again, it, it's, it has enabled us to push back, but it's only because the floodgates are are pouring the other way. So yeah, it's a real problem. Uh, and I think we've got a really, uh, I'm not an expert on misinformation by any means. Um, uh, I've just written this one book, but, uh, those who do work in the field, uh, I think I have the job cut out for them because, uh, it's going to take a great deal of, I think basic kind of you know, media literacy. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we need to get back to uh, the basics, teachers in schools, because it is going to be a huge problem.
0: I am worried about that, <laughs> um, especially because it, I think COVID is, is the perfect example of this, even though it's it's not a it's it's a separate topic. Right. And I think that it's a perfect example because science is science. Like mm-hmm. it's different. It's different than history. Yeah, it's si- it's similar uh, in some ways. Right. You, you have like facts Right. There's like facts. Um, But but I think in in some ways, um, the response to just the science of the pandemic, like wear a mask, that would be helpful. Just like, you know, doctors wear it in the hospital and they go in COVID patient rooms and come out and don't have COVID. So obviously there's some science behind the fact, like the reasoning for the mask. But yet we still have people pushing misinformation in the face of science in the same way. I feel like the misinformation has been perpetuated um against history and it's to our detriment like it's not yeah. good if we don't get the stuff right
1: no, no, and I, I think the COVID stuff shows uh, you know the real stakes of this. Uh, you know, somebody misunderstands uh, you know the Republican Southern strategy; uh, they're probably not going to die. Uh, but if you uh, you know misunderstand COVID uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, and don't take the safety precautions you need there, yeah, it can be really serious. So I think it shows just how stark this problem is. And you're right; it's not just history. It's 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 across a, 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 a range of fields. There's been a real not just mistrust but distrust of experts uh, that Mm -hmm. they're somehow uh you know running some kind of scam on us uh and and I think it's really dangerous
0: I'm like Anthony Fauci just wants you to be alive that's it like he wakes up every day wanting Mm -hmm. you to survive (laughs) I I feel like that's his motivation and uh and you're like no Fauci is a criminal and I'm like he just wants you to live like that's he just wants you to live without long COVID that's it um historian Kevin Cruz author and and, uh, co-author of the book Myth America, which is an anthology of 20 essays by a number of historians. We've talked through many of the topics and I think this is a a timely book and I I hope a lot of you go out and get it because we need every person to know this history so that you can push back uh, when these myths come up in conversation and in our political debates. to Mornings with Zerlina. check in for new episodes every weekday.